us accept I wish science agreed with you. that it is within our power to halt and reverse climate change. We are the first nation to go underwater if we don't stop fossil fuel. We are a generation of scared people, but very ambitious, very united, very persistent, and very good at action. When we don't act, people who look like me die. We indeed have some work to do. Others. We're not here to save this world, we're here to tear down this world and build a new one. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Planet B, Everything Must Change, a podcast that explores the key pillars of a globally just Green New Deal. I'm your host, Harpreet Kaur-Paul, and in this final episode, I'll be delving into an issue that underpins many of the themes we've discussed in this series, debt. Debt is a vital part of climate stories everywhere. It holds down existing inequalities between and within nations by letting those with economic and military might extract and accumulate wealth from those in distress. It also determines who has the freedom to spend, on what, and for whose benefit. We've seen throughout this series how our global financial system prevents some countries from developing the necessary infrastructures of mitigation and adaptation to survive climate breakdown, and how As ecological collapse magnifies existing inequalities, financial debt, now more than ever, means suffering for those tied to never-ending repayment schemes or forced to take on loans with burdensome austerity conditions. But we've also talked about another kind of debt, a climate debt, a debt owed by the current and historic polluting nations in the global north to those who have contributed the least to climate breakdown, but are most affected by its worst impacts. In today's episode, I'll be speaking to a host of expert guests to discuss both dimensions of debt. We'll discuss how financial debt currently functions to perpetuate neocolonial power structures and ask how these systems can be unravelled we'll look at reframing our understanding of debt under the rubric of climate justice and imagine how a just and equitable global Green New Deal might repair such injustices to build our new world on planet B. And finally, a reminder from me to get your copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the book on which we've based this series. It's available now and free to order at www.global-gnd.com. The 
pace of global public debt accumulation has increased by tens of trillions of dollars over the past few years. Conservationists fear the country may compromise its forests in order to balance its books. Financial trouble in Puerto Rico, where leaders want to declare bankruptcy but cannot unless the US Congress changes the law. The ability of Mozambique to rebuild from this disaster will be seriously impaired by the country's debt crisis, triggered by two billion of secret loans from London-based banks. It is like walking with stones in our shoes. We owe huge sums of money, sums of money we cannot afford. The realistic proposal from Greece will have to be matched by an equally realistic proposal on debt sustainability from the creditors. Only then will we have a win-win situation. In episode three of this series, we heard from public economist and member of the Greek parliament, Yanis Vadafakis. We discussed how Greece was forced into taking on EU and IMF bailout loans after the 2008 financial crash on conditions of brutal austerity. And we considered how this dynamic was just a small taste of the way in which debt is currently and has historically been used to enforce a neoliberal economic agenda. In popular imagination, debt is often linked to taking moral responsibility for the burdens you've incurred. And yet, in reality, debt relationships like that of Greece to the EU are so often built on and deepen injustice and precarity. So what exactly is debt? And what role does it actually play in maintaining our global systems of finance? My name is Jayati Ghosh. I teach economics. I taught for nearly 35 years in Nehru University in India. And I'm currently teaching at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in the US. So I'm based in both the US and India. Jayati is an expert in the economics of development in global South countries particularly in the context of international trade and finance. We asked her about debt and the role that it plays in our globalised economy. Well, you know, debt is actually quite a complex issue. Uh, At its simplest level, it is simply the uh, ability to take on some resources and repay them over time, depending on your capacity. And that taking on of this debt Uh, can be for investment, it can be for consumption, it can be to meet an immediate need, something extraordinary that you don't normally have to pay for. So there are many reasons why debt is taken on. It is at one level the very lifeblood of a capitalist market system. Capitalism cannot function without credit, which actually operates to enable companies to carry on with their investments. Working capital, for example, is absolutely basic to any commercial market system. However, debt in its current form extends to many more different areas. And especially with regard to personal debt, there's a massive increase in this because of the growing financialization of our economies in both the advanced economies and in the developing world. What this suggests is that debt has gone beyond this fairly straightforward system which allocates resources of the future for current investment, because investment also is about investing for the future. 
into something that enables power. So if you wanted a one-word uh, analogy, I would say debt is power. The holding of debt confers power on the creditors, and it has increasingly enabled creditors to set terms upon debtors, which are often very onerous, whether they are governments or they are households. As Jayati explains, debt, in its most basic sense, works as a means of borrowing the resources from the future. Whoever is lending the money, the creditor, can decide who is able to invest in the present and thus who is provided for in that future. Creditors set the terms upon which debts are paid back, meaning that whoever is doing the lending is essentially able to control and steer the future of the debtor, whether that be a person, household, company or nation-state, until the point that those debts are paid off. Creditors also get an upper hand in negotiating access to land, resources and labour in debtor countries, which they take advantage of, without having to pay decent wages, local taxes, or for cleaning up the consequences of their environmental damage. Financial instruments like compound interest, which continually increases the size of debt over time, prolong this coercive dynamic and result in countries paying back far more than they originally borrowed. In our globalised world, $11 trillion is still owed in debt by developing countries, even though, in many cases, the initial amount loaned has already been paid off several times over. This is a key way in which wealth is transferred from the South to the North. Global Justice Now research estimates that every year, $40 billion more wealth flows from Africa to the global north in the form of resource extraction, tax avoidance and debt repayments than is received in the form of aid, loans and remittances. As Jethi explains, once we start to look at it this way, it is clear that in today's global system, debt is a tool to organize power. And the global architecture, the global financial architecture, actually has reinforced this tendency whereby there is a a whole hierarchy of both debtors and creditors. So let me give you a few examples. A country that defaults on its debt is usually seen as a pariah in the global system. Okay, So countries like Argentina was... Uh, everyone said, oh, Argentina has defaulted and it was excluded from global credit markets. It was put through very, very harsh conditionalities. The IMF and everybody else weighed in to make sure that Argentina really suffered because of its inability to pay debt. Yet when this happened to Argentina, it had actually repaid the principal and more. It was just that because it had delayed in some payments, those Delays then got added on to the principal at even higher interest rates. And then its attempt to restructure the debt was successful with 85% of the creditors, but the 15% holdout creditors could file a case in the US and demand full repayment, which was impossible for Argentina, and which forced it to become a defaulter. So this is what happens to a developing country that defaults, so-called. 
By contrast, consider the United States in 1971. Before June 1971, the US had promised to pay any of its creditors the equivalent in gold of any dollar debt that it held. Okay, it had linked the dollar, $35 to one ounce of gold. That was the explicit promise. But then Nixon just gets on television and says, sorry, we are delinking the dollar from gold. So it's a default. It is actually the biggest sovereign default known in the history of the world economy. And yet that's not seen as a default. The US does not suffer for that. This is the 50th anniversary, by the way, of that this summer. And uh, the US gets away with it and completely recasts the global financial system and is able to do that because it is powerful as a debtor. So power permeates debt relationships. When we begin to look at which countries are actually required to repay their debts, a familiar neocolonial pattern begins to emerge. Developing nations are in perpetual and crippling debt to post-imperial and neo-colonial states and institutions. Africa's total debt is currently estimated at around $417 billion, with 36% of that being owed to so-called development organisations, such as the World Bank and IMF. I asked Jayati about the role of these multilateral institutions in perpetuating neocolonial systems of debt. One of the most striking things about the IMF in particular over the last 10-12 years has been the double standards that they have with respect to developing and countries' emerging markets on the one hand and the advanced economies on the other. So the IMF is known for imposing very serious conditionalities, which mostly involve fiscal austerity cutting back on public spending, uh, and going in for very regressive taxation, like value-added taxes that fall disproportionately on the poor. So when developing countries approach the IMF, because sometimes because of a shock beyond their control, like the global financial crisis, like the COVID pandemic, they are nevertheless told, well, you have to go out there and behave yourself and cut down on your spending and stabilize your economy and adjust by, it, it, it will be painful, but you have to do it, is what they're still being told to do. By contrast, the advanced economies, which are often the very source of the big crisis, in 2008, it was the United States that was the source. In 2010, it was the Eurozone cut. The advanced economies, suddenly there's a whole different approach where you need to spend more. The IMF in its annual report says the United States needs to spend more in 2008. The government has to increase its spending. In 2020, the same. The IMF is saying is welcoming massive fiscal expansion in the US and the European Union and Japan and elsewhere. It's saying it's necessary to revive the global economy. At the same time, it continues to impose the really most counterproductive and punishing austerity on developing countries. So there is, uh, I mean, I, don't, I think it's interesting that there is really no attempt to hide these double standards anymore. The cruel hierarchies of our financial system have been on full display during the coronavirus pandemic. Since the 1980s, the IMF and World Bank have imposed structural adjustment programs as conditions of loans to developing nations which has led to massive underdevelopment in basic public services in countries around the world. 
Today, more than 100 countries are facing cuts to public funding on health, education and social protection due to COVID-19's exacerbation of long-standing debts. In many cases, these same nations have had to take out further loans to fund their COVID-19 responses. As we saw with the case of Ghana in episode 3, over 30 African countries are spending more on debt repayments than they are on public health care. Even now, while the global north is rolling out its booster jabs, many global south countries are unable to access even first-dose vaccines. The burden of this international debt extraction is borne by everyday people who bear no responsibility for its existence. It is public money that is used to repay coercive state debts and vital public services that are slashed as a result. So well, I'm Lucia Barcena and I'm a researcher. I work for the Transnational Institute, which is an international center for research, especially uh, on public policies. And I'm working on the program of economic justice and on the project of trade and investment. And for the book, I collaborated with my colleague Cecilia Olivet on the chapter about what is wrong with trade and investment agreements. In Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, Lucia Barsena wrote about another tool of our global financial architecture, trade agreements. Lucia wrote about how these international investment treaties are powerful tools that enable fossil fuel corporations in the global north to sue nation-states if they attempt to implement policies that curtail their profits in favour of social spending or climate action. The reason why we want to put the focus on these treaties is because if we want to continue on the climate struggle, if we want to make sure that states comply to the climate goals and reduce the consumption of energy or stop subsidizing fossil fuels, if we have these treaties in place, that's going to mean that these foreign companies can sue the host state um, at any time if, if there's a legislation that goes against their business profits. So one issue is the loss of money that implies, but also, you know, the threat of a lawsuit happening can make a country think twice if it's worth changing or not that specific public policy, that specific law or regulation because of the exposure that it can have to million dollar lawsuits. And this is happening already. We have seen cases and it's also, of course, difficult to monitor, but but we have already monitored some of these cases that happened. Uh, which are in the in the book chapter, if you want to read more. Um, we, you know, we just want to make sure that climate activists have the floor free to actually propose uh, policies and those policies can actually happen. And for that to take place, we just need to make sure that we don't have any obstacles in the way. And one of those obstacles are these international investment agreements like the Energy Charter Treaty. Agreements like the Energy Charter Treaty work to deter governments from advancing progressive agendas by allowing corporations to bypass national legal systems. 
These agreements forefront what are known as ISDSs, Investor State Dispute Settlements, which allow investors to challenge state policies in international arbitration tribunals, forcing even wealthier nations into corporate-friendly policymaking. Spain just passed a, a new law on climate change and energy transition. And on the law, there was an amendment which contemplated cancelling a license for mining companies, especially on uranium mineral, right? Um, and immediately after that announcement was made, the, the company sent a letter to the Spanish attorneys, state attorneys, saying that if that would happen, then the company would seek remedy or compensation um, in international arbitration. So that's the way that these treaties work. You know, there are like a lot of other lobby instruments that, of course, are going to hinder the energy transition. But these international investment agreements are a huge uh, lobby tool that investors and law firms are going to be using to just remind uh, governments that they are signatories and they uh, have committed to specific obligations towards foreign investors. In case they stop complying, then these foreign investors are going to seek for huge millions of euros in compensations. Just as debt is used to discipline national governments into submitting to neoliberal agendas, these ISDS treaties take things one step further, enabling them to bully national legislators through the threat of legal action, even to the point of reversing popular democratic policies. This system is a fundamental roadblock to decarbonisation. Whether it's the British oil and gas company, Rockhopper, suing the Italian state after it cancelled their licence to drill in the Adriatic Sea, or any one of the 131 cases brought by corporations against governments under the Energy Charter Treaty. Our international legal and financial systems are set out to prioritise the profits of wealthy multinationals, overtaking the action necessary to limit global heating. This use of financial instruments like debt and compensation in order to uphold exploitation has historical precedents. When Haiti reclaimed its independence from France, it was forced to pay compensation to the French slaveholders it had overthrown. It's estimated that, in order to ward off military intervention, Haiti paid today's equivalent of 21 billion US dollars over a period of 122 years. As we can see, the development of the North and the underdevelopment of the South is connected. And it is connected by the brutally enforced and exploitative design of our global trade and finance system. Today, ministers and governors endorsed a G20 action plan in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Our actions today include a G20 initiative to suspend debt service payment for the poorest countries. The coronavirus pandemic powerfully demonstrated not only the injustice of this financial order, but also the fact that, even though it is made to seem natural or inevitable, 
It is, in fact, entirely arbitrary. In 2020, the most powerful nations of the world met at the G20 to agree to a debt service suspension initiative, with social and climate justice advocates across the globe calling upon leaders to write off the unjust and unfair debts that are crippling the Global South's pandemic response. The G20 instead agreed to a short-term postponement of debt repayments until December 2021. This suspension did not include debts to private creditors who constitute an increasing proportion of lenders, particularly to nations in Africa. However, what this ruling did expose was the fundamentally conditional nature of debt. It can be halted, wiped out or cancelled at the whims of creditors and powerful politicians. In contrast, when indebted nations refuse to pay, they are met with swift, decisive and punitive action. This week, Zambia is inadvertently making history for all the wrong reasons. The Zambian government missed a $42.5 million sovereign bond payment on Friday. The first sub-Saharan eurobond issuer to default. Dancing and cheers greeted Zambia's new president at his inauguration on Tuesday. But behind the party atmosphere, Hakainde Hichilema faces a formidable challenge, tackling the southern African country's mountain of debt. Last year, Zambia missed two consecutive repayments on its eurobond debts. In response, its credit rating was downgraded and the IMF refused to implement a bailout unless the country agreed to a new economic programme. It even waited for elections in August this year to allow a new amenable government to take power and the negotiations are still ongoing over debt restructuring with external creditors. Following its default, Zambia now has had to allocate 44% of annual government revenue to its creditors. The Jubilee Debt Campaign has estimated that some banks make a 250% profit on Zambian bonds. Meanwhile, more than one in two Zambian people live below the global extreme poverty line of just $1.90 a day. This story shows us something crucial, that payment of debt is a choice for creditors, but a question of life and death for debtor nations. Paying back this debt at a time of insurmountable health insecurity and poverty was a genuine question of survival for the Zambian people. In the words of the pan-Africanist former president of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara, the debt cannot be repaid, first of all, because if we don't pay, the lenders won't die. On the other hand, if we do pay, we are the ones who will die. So I am Esther Stanford Cossey, and my work is primarily that of a reparations, a reparationist, which is a reparations uh, scholar activist. And I'm based in South East London. In Esther's work as an activist and advocate, she has drawn attention to the idea of debt repudiation. Unlike cancellation, repudiation works on the premise that the debts in question are illegitimate and therefore the very terms of their existence 
must be rejected. So debt repudiation is is based on a principle advocated by um, various jurists that is talks about the notion of certain debts being illegitimate, especially when those debts have been amassed by a regime that has been imposed upon a sovereign people, especially nations that have been colonised. So the notion of odious debt is the term that gets used. These debts are odious because they are not legitimate debts that should be then defrayed onto the people, which is often what happens, okay? And that had the people not been subjected to a form of misrule that still benefits more powerful nations in the so-called global north, then those resources might have been used for other purposes. So that is the the, the notion of um, odious debt, that these are illegitimate because they have not been you know, wrapped up by the ordinary people. In fact, ordinary people have been disadvantaged and severely penalised and oppressed by some of these debts. And, you know, for instance, you mentioned Haiti, uh, the the Haiti debt, so-called independence debt, that wasn't repaid until 1847 in full. And research has been done to show that the impact of that servicing this illegitimate debt that was imposed by France, you know, in the 1800s, was to then take away resources that should have been spent on healthcare, education, and basic social services for the Haitian people. So when we're looking at the crisis of underdevelopment, we also have to look at the way in which, as Thomas Sankara um, spoke about, you know, debt is is a form of conquest still of nations that have experienced colonisation. Yeah, and when we recognise that debt is being used as a form of conquest in terms of keeping such nations in bondage and often extracting way over the amount of original money that the debt was supposed to be. So it ends up being not only a form of conquest, it's very fraudulent. And so debt repudiation, as the term in English to repudiate, it's it's really we are not paying because we do not recognise this debt as being ours. It is illegitimate. We'll hear much more from Esther later in the show. But for now, it is clear that if we are to achieve a just and sustainable transition to a post-carbon future, this very notion of debt repudiation must be central to a global Green New Deal. We must face up to the neocolonial systems of finance and trade which underwrite global inequities and understand that a truly just future cannot be achieved until we reclaim power from those financial institutions that allow the use of debt as a weapon of profit and corporate control. So, if these are debts that must be repudiated, what kinds of debts are legitimate? Asad Raymond, War on Want, speaking on behalf of the Climate Justice constituency. I'm finding it difficult to convey our anger and frustration at this utter betrayal of people. Hollow words about climate emergency from the richest countries and utter disregard about of the science and equity, false ambition and disdain for justice, a license to pollute with net zero 2050 and carbon markets. 
you have made decisions, as one party acknowledged, decisions about life and death for millions. Yet 500 years of colonial rule and white supremacy looting the wealth of the global south and you still value your profits over the lives of black, brown and indigenous people. The rich have refused to do their fair share. More empty words on climate finance. You've turned your backs on the poorest who face a crisis of Covid, economic and climate apartheid because of the actions of the richest. It's immoral for the rich to talk about their future children and grandchildren when the children of the Global South are dying now. We needed concrete solidarity and cooperation. The rich offered more empty words. As of 2015, the Global North is responsible for 92% of excess global CO2 emissions. The US and EU alone are responsible for 49% of total territorial carbon emissions between 1850 and 2015. Where the global poor generate almost no greenhouse gases, just 100 companies produce 71% of our total emissions. As we've learned throughout this series, people in countries that are vulnerable to climate breakdown are unprotected from its impacts. While countries that industrialised early have contributed the most to global warming, the wealth they generated from colonialism and fossil fuel development have left them relatively insulated to climate shocks, which most perniciously hurt countries that have experienced hundreds of years of colonialism and slavery and now find themselves exposed to the harshest climate consequences. We know this system is grotesquely unfair, and we know there is a debt owed here. A debt which, as we have seen, is just as much about dismantling systems of extraction and exploitation as it is about building new, just systems of financing, care and reparation. It is quite simply one of the most polluted places on earth. Crops burn to a cinder, ash and tar smothering the land, wells polluted with oil, making the water totally undrinkable. Entire communities devastated as their way of life has been destroyed by pollution. Today, we take you to Agoniland in southern Nigeria, to the Niger Delta, where pollution has well, become the norm. It is not a new problem. Amnesty accusing the oil giant Shell of turning a blind eye or even helping the military's use of rape, torture and unlawful killings amid protests against pollution and poverty right back in the 1990s. The debts accrued in the age of fossil fuels extend far beyond a general or abstract notion of debt between nations. The acute instances of destruction by carbon capital have had real and lasting material and psychological impacts on local communities throughout the world. In Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, Ken Henshaw, the Executive Director of We the People, a non-governmental organisation based in the Niger Delta, wrote about the legacies of British colonialism in Nigeria. He wrote about the history of oil production in the region and about how the wedlock between the repressive state and the multinational oil company Royal Dutch Shell have exploited and oppressed the Nigerian people. From the very start of the oil business, there was no conversation with the local communities in the Niger Delta 
where crude oil is deposited, where crude oil is found. There's no, there was no conversation with the Nigerian people. The conversation at the time existed only between the colonial authorities and the oil companies owned by the colonialists. So it was a one-way conversation, one that did not in any way speak to the people of the Niger Delta region, valued the input of the local people in the Niger Delta region. Absolutely not. It was a one-way discussion, and the agenda was not to find ways of tapping this new resource in such a manner that it impacts in any meaningful way on the people of the Niger Delta. No, that was not the conversation. The conversation was how this resource could be tapped and channeled out of the country in such a way that it contributes to the economy, the welfare, and the development of Britain, of Europe. That was a conversation. And so while today it has become fashionable to say that before any such resource project is established, right, you need to have the free, prior, and informed consent of the people, that never happened. All extraction was always an imposition from without, an imposition against the people. And that's why the people up till today feel they have been totally and completely alienated from the oil industry in Nigeria. Nigeria suffered under British colonialism until its independence in 1960. Yet, Ken told us how the same patterns of extraction and exploitation have continued in the Niger Delta, even after the formal end of colonial rule. So when Nigeria became independent in 1960, to sustain this same relation of production, right, this, this license to extract mindlessly, this protection which was given by the colonial government at the time, to keep this going, the oil companies had to go into another wedlock, another relationship with independent Nigeria's government. That was pretty much the same conversation, the same relations that happened with the colonial government. So what we see in this new relationship is the same level of protection extended by Nigeria's security forces, extended by the Nigerian judiciary, extended by the Nigerian ruling elite to the oil companies over and above the interests of locals in Nigeria. Between pre-colonial era, the colonial era, and post-colonial Nigeria, that is independent Nigeria, the relations have not changed. What has instead changed is the people that the multinationals have had to collaborate with. In the first part, it was with British Crown. Now it is with independent Nigeria's government that have, you know, in successions since 1960 up till today. The oil industry has taken on the same old colonial patterns of an inherent wedlock between a repressive state and mindless oil extracting companies. When it first began extracting oil in Nigeria in the 1950s, Shell had promised to build roads, hospitals, schools, electricity and provide job opportunities for the communities of the Niger Delta. Fast forward by several decades and none of the promises have been kept. Instead, the farming and fishing community have been exposed to pollution, land grabs and loss of livelihoods. In 1992, the Agoni people of the Niger Delta rose up in protest against the exploitation of labour and resources that were fueling this corporate greed. 
Shell called in tactical units of the Nigerian police who burnt homes, killing 100 people in what is known as the Umuchem massacre. Since that day, nobody has been held to account. Well, in the 1990s, the Ogoni ethnic nationality in Nigeria, um, located in the part of the of the Niger Delta, where some of the largest oil finds are, you know, owned and extracted by Shell. Um, they, they demanded a better deal from the Nigerian government and from the oil company. They simply say that we have not seen any benefits from oil extraction in our community. What we have seen, on the contrary, is the fact that oil extraction has created a system of um, environmental destruction which has denied the people of their livelihoods. I mean, their people are fisher folks and farmers. And where you have oil extracted and it pollutes farmlands, makes it impossible for people to put seeds in the ground and those seeds germinate at the right time and produce food for the people. Where you have fisher folks who can no longer go fishing because the rivers have become dead of any form of aquatic life. What you have is a crisis. The Goni people in 1990 had become, you know, overtly destitute, total, completely destitute on account of oil extraction. And led by the environmental rights activist Ken Sarawiwa, they demanded to, to redefine that relationship. Um, simply saying, listen, you either clean the mess you've made here or you stop extraction so that we see if our land can heal. That same relations of production, that unholy wedlock between the repressive states and the oil companies kicked in. Ken Sarawiwa, um, the, the Ogoni movement was violently repressed by the Nigerian state. Thousands of Ogoni people were killed, women were raped, properties were destroyed. And up till today, several Ogoni still live in countries uh, outside Nigeria as refugees, political asylum. I have been in a community called Wida in Benin Republic, where there's a large settlement of Ogonis still too traumatized to come back home to Nigeria. They remain there essentially out of, out, of, out of trauma. But surprisingly, for the first time in the history of people's fight against multinational, the Ogonis were able to stop Royal Dutch Shell from continuing the extraction of crude oil in their territory. The extraction economy relies on state oppression. It relies on corporations having close ties with local governments, who they rely on to secure their interests on the ground. Ken told us about how this manifested in the show trial of Agoni activist Ken Sarawiwa, who along with eight other activists, was executed by the Nigerian government in 1994, after Royal Dutch Shell was forced to suspend its operations in Agoni lands. In the case of Shell in Ogoniland, we saw a repressive state, which was military at the time, collaborating very, very actively with the Nigerian um, government. It was a textbook alliance between the repressive state and uh, oil companies. We saw oil company officials actually deploying troops to Ogoniland. We saw Nigerian forces doing the bidding of oil companies. We saw a situation where at a point, at a point, Nigerian forces were armed by oil companies. We saw a kangaroo trial that happened with Shell sitting in the courtroom, representatives of Shell sitting in the courtroom and said to be keeping a watch, you know, observing the proceedings. But we know for a fact that they were actually there to ensure that they influence the process 
of that kangaroo trial that it achieves its desired end. This is not just, this, this happened in Ogoni, but we have seen the same pattern happen in other parts of the United Delta. We have seen situations where communities have risen in acts of dissent, asking for a better deal from the oil industry, and the response of the states and the invitation of the oil company has always been the same level of repression. To this day, Shell continues to extract crude oil and destroy the livelihoods of local people in the Niger Delta. In 2010, a leaked diplomatic cable revealed the extent to which Shell still holds its grip on the Nigerian government. The oil company claimed it had staff in every key ministry of the Nigerian state and so was privy to every decision being made by key politicians. I asked Ken, in this obscene context where fossil fuel companies, in collaboration with a repressive state, have decimated the livelihoods of local people, what does the word debt even mean? What debt means in the context of Nigeria, in the context of oil extraction, in the context of Niger Delta communities, is not necessarily financial. You know, Nigeria takes a loan and has to pay back. No. Debt goes much deeper than the financial relationship. Debt involves reparations and restitution. We, we cannot simply run away from years of destruction. The oil companies cannot literally invade a country, invade people's community, destroy their environment, extract their resources mindlessly and ruthlessly for over 60 years. And then when they are done, they pack their bags and go away, leaving the people with holes in the ground, destroyed livelihoods, destroyed rivers, destroyed farmlands, and destroyed psyches. No. Debt for us means that the people who committed environmental atrocities are held to account for those atrocities they committed. Debt for us means that the people who destroyed people's lives and livelihoods bear a responsibility for fixing what they destroyed. For us, the conversation around movement away from the age of oil is incomplete without restoration of what was destroyed in the age of oil. So we cannot, there's no way we can dance around this argument. Oil destroyed the lives of countless number of communities and people in the Niger Delta region. Oil and the fact that it was extracted by certain companies left with them a debt which has to be repaid. It's a debt of clean up. It's a debt of restitution. It's a debt of accountability. And it is a debt which the people of the Niger Delta region are poised, dedicated, and focused on receiving. The debt owed to the people of the Niger Delta is part of a legacy of colonial plunder and dispossession that has been replicated in countries around the world. A story of how communities in the South have been ripped of resources and labour to fund the drive to accumulation for wealthy capitalists, predominantly based in the global north. Today, the Nigerian state is in around $14 billion worth of debt to the IMF and World Bank, while in 2020, it spent 97% of its total revenue on debt servicing.
Yet what has been taken from Nigeria, economically and politically, continues to be absent from conversations about who owes what in an age of climate breakdown. For the last few hours, we've been walking from the Bank of England who are turning a blind eye as profit is made from climate collapse. Shame on them! We're standing here with you all today because we know, as Audrey Lord taught us, our silence will not protect us. We're not standing here with you today to talk about saving this world. We are saying no more to the so-called world leaders who are all climate talk and no climate action. Let's cancel debts supposedly owed by Global South countries. Let's insist that those who have caused this crisis, the wealthy here in the Global North, that they pay reparations for the debts they owe from profiting from slavery, colonialism, all the wars and climate change. In addressing this deep and continuing history of debt, climate justice activists have joined racial justice activists in a call for what is known as reparations. As Brulei Bagayoko, the Secretary of the Coalition of Alternative Debt and Development in Mali, wrote in Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the first step would be to recognise that the countries considered as indebted are in fact the creditors, and to correct this particular view of the world. The second step consists in paying reparations for these human, economic and ecological crimes committed in history. Reparation is a legal concept defined by the UN General Assembly and human rights bodies. It includes compensation, public apologies, social justice initiatives, education, cultural projects, commemorative ceremonies, affirmative action and much more. Reparations for colonialism and slavery has long been a demand of black and brown organisers. In her work as an activist and advocate, Esther Stanford Cossey, who you heard from earlier in the show, is part of what is known as the International Social Movement for African Reparations. So the movement has, you know, long roots in the UK and it has always stood for the restoration of African people and repair and redress for the injuries that African people had experienced during forms of enslavement, such as chattel enslavement, colonialism, and then now we talk about neo-colonialism in terms of the structural injustices that have been impacting not only African people, but also other colonised peoples. So the International Social Movement for African Reparations is a term that movement theorists and activists like myself have coined to differentiate the different reparations campaigns and movements and struggles that there have been amongst various groups of oppressed people. The concept of reparations as financial compensation for the loss and damage encountered by those on the front line of climate change impacts has become a central demand of the climate justice movement in recent decades. The economic costs of climate change-linked disasters is already around 200 billion US dollars per year. 
and this damage is predicted to reach between 290 and 580 billion US dollars by 2030. At the upper end, this would equal more than the combined GDP of the world's 80 poorest countries. But when we spoke to Esther, she was keen to stress that while financial compensation is fundamental, the concept of reparations extends far beyond a mere transfer of wealth. A lot of people misunderstand the term reparations and reduce it to being just about financial compensation. But actually, the International Social Movement for African Reparations embraces what's known as the conceptual framework, which has been advocated by somebody called Professor Chimwezu, and he's a Nigerian public intellectual, and he advocates the notion of reparations as holistic repairs, you know, being true to the root of reparations in the English language, coming from repare. And it's a famous definition where he talks about money being only 1% of what reparation is about, but reparation is mostly about making repairs on ourselves. And he talks about different types of repairs, such as mental, um, psychological, cultural, organisational, social, institutional, technological, economic, political and educational repairs. And basically all the repairs that we need in order to recreate and sustain ourselves as viable communities in society. Reparations are not just about addressing the harms of the past, they are also about preventing the damages of the present and into the future. Working within this framework, Esther has been active in PARCA, the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe, which centres environmental demands as part of a broader concept of decolonial reparation. PARCO, the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe, uh, has always had this uh, environmental aspect to our organising as reparationists because we recognise that the legacies of enslavement and colonisation being experienced through neo-colonialism today were not just harms to us as people, there was also harms to our environment. You take people away from their lands, those lands become plantations and, you know, those lands become colonised and so forth. And we're now seeing the end result of that in terms of what many people in the world are recognising now as being a climate and ecological crisis. So we brought, we formed this, this companionship this partnership to elevate environmental justice, climate justice perspectives within the international social movement for African reparations. Because that as a system, if we're talking about climate crisis, environmental injustice is one of the ways in which we continue to be harmed today. And 
our communities um, in Africa, in Abu Ayala, um, in other parts of the global south are already being impacted, are already on the front lines, having to wage multiple resistances in terms of the intersectionality of how we, you know, because we can't just say, oh, we're fighting climate crisis and, you know, ecological crisis today. Oh, we're fighting colonization of our lands and land grabs tomorrow. It, it has to be intersectional. And that's been the beauty of a lot of our movements. So what does a just system actually look like? Who has the power to decide what counts as reparations? And can this be achieved within our existing legal and political power structures? In their most concrete form, reparations have a convoluted history. On one hand, we have seen financial reparations paid by the German state to the victims of the Jewish Holocaust. On the other hand, we've also seen the distortion of the concept. From the example of Haiti being forced to pay an independence debt to France, to the founders of Lloyds of London, who received over $11 million compensation for so-called property loss upon the abolition of slavery. These were not slaves, these were African people their condition was enslavement and a legal system that continues to perpetrate this lie that these were non-people mm-hmm. is part of the problem. And part of what we in this time have to do is to ensure that we don't kind of continue that colonial lie and misrepresentation Mm -hmm. of the dignity and the status of these human beings. Um, And so that is part of the issue. And yes, Lloyds of London determining for itself, you know, it spoke about giving some, setting some funding aside to to fund um, what it referred to as black and minority ethnic groups. Again, you know, institutions that have benefited and profited from the plunder, um, dispossession of uh, people and despoilation of the earth shouldn't get to be the ones determining what reparations look like. That remains for the people who have been most affected and impacted Otherwise, it then becomes an issue that is self-congratulatory for these institutions that still wield and hold power and are refusing to give that up. Taking this into the hands of our climate and social justice movements, Esther and the International Social Movement for African Reparations have an annual Reparations Day march. I asked her what the message of this march is and what the movement hopes to achieve The aims of the march, um, as we framed them, were to draw attention um, to African people's global determination to not let the British state and other perpetrators get away with the crimes of the Maangamizi, which we refer to as the African Holocaust of chattel colonial and neo-colonial forms of enslavement as a continuum, to also raise awareness and consciousness about the fact that all the attacks upon us in both individual and collective instances amount to genocide and ecocide 
in what we refer to as Ma'angamizi continuity, necessitating reparations. So um, reparations are for this continuum of genocide and ecocide. Wherever there's ecocide, there's genocide. Wherever there's genocide, there's ecocide. This is what Indigenous people have always advocated and taught. Um, to also increase the awareness of the necessity to stop the Ma'angamizi and its current manifestations, such as austerity, attempts to recolonize Africa, menticide, deaths in police, um, psychiatric and prison custody, to demonstrate African people's strength, capacity, and determination to speak to and challenge establishment power with our own grassroots power, our own grow, growing grassroots power to affect and secure reparatory justice on our own terms. A pathway to reparations begins with a reckoning, with a recognition of what has been done, what has been taken, what can be given back and what can never be recovered. It begins with undoing the social and cultural myth that there is no alternative to the way our economy is already organised and undoing a logic that certain people matter less and can be sacrificed. As well as taking accountability for historic violence, reparation is about committing to prevent future harms and building a sustainable world. This includes shifting how and why we work away from the exploitative demands of profit so we can do what we need to to care for people and the planet. It means changing our relationship to land away from one of ownership and extraction and towards one of collaboration and stewardship. It means financing the infrastructures of resilience and care that we need in an era of climate breakdown allowing local communities to determine what they need to survive and thrive in a post-carbon world. It means treating water as a vital life resource it is and not as a commodity or a site of endless extraction. It means removing the borders that create and consolidate inequality between nations and enshrining everyone's right to stay as well as the right to move. And of course, reparation requires debts to be repudiated and the structures of unequal trade and investment to be dismantled and rebuilt more equitably. Whether it's how we work, how we eat, how we trade or how we move, recentering collective well-being and cooperation over competition and accumulation is part of reparatively redesigning the systems in which we live. The climate crisis presents us with an existential threat that requires a global response. But it also gives us an urgent opportunity to remake the world into something better. Thank you for joining us and all our amazing guests who've helped us begin to imagine life on planet B.
Thank you for listening to Planet B, Everything Must Change. This series was produced by Freddie Stewart and made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Shiftung. This episode was written by Freddie Stewart and Dahlia Gabriel. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann and the podcast artwork was designed by Tamika George and Pietro Garoni. If you enjoyed our Planet B series, please get in touch to show your support. You can leave a review for us on the Navarro Media Podcast feed or contact myself at Harpreet K. Paul or Dahlia at Dahlia Gabriel on Twitter. And of course, just one final reminder that you can order a free copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the illustrated book on which this series is based, at www.global-gnd.com. I've been your host, Harpreet Kaur Paul. Thanks for listening.